following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So the sermon... I entitled it here, The Portrait of a Self-Righteous Man, but uh, it's also what I call the tale of two men. This tale or story may be summarized uh, by thinking about two historical figures. One man was of inauspicious background, did not have great material possessions, uh, died in the stride of life, a grievous and tragic death, and was a little known in his day, but not much thought of in our day. The other man comes from a very um, uh, noble but violent background. Uh, He lived a very long life. He was very wealthy, and to this day, he is known around the world. So far as treatment here, the judgment of God is, could be summarized as the tale of these two men. Now, I'll come back to the men later. But keep that in mind, the two men as, as paradigms of the, of the providence and the ways of God. Job has finished his uh, defense in chapter 19 uh, against the, the men. He has all along in the chapters we've seen asserted his innocence in that he knows that whatever is going on, that God is not judging him as a grievous, wicked sinner. He has a clear conscience in these things. He overspeaks himself. He he says some very wrong things about God, but he's persistent, though, in um, defending himself. But he's also growing in his uh, refutation of their argument. Now, you remember the system. And the system is that in this life, it's the, the prosperous or the righteous. If you are suffering, you are wicked. That really is the thesis. The first health, wealth, and prosperity theologians uh, in the church. And Job's been pushing back, not just in defending himself, but pushing back against that thesis. He has clearly established uh, from a natural revelation and from the tradition of old that that is not at all a consistent pattern. Uh, that some wicked live full lives and go to the grave happy, and other wicked are cut off in the midst of life. And some righteous also will suffer in this life. And so as he's pushed back, he comes now to a bit of a climax in his own confession here in chapter 19, first laying the foundation uh, as he's, he's, seeking, he's seeking grace, he's seeking understanding and pity from these men, he says what he needs is, is, is sympathy, uh, not condemnation. He needs a clear word from God, and he needs friends and not desertion. Now he's at the nadir. He's, he's at rock bottom. He has not a friend at this point that's of any of his close companions. And suddenly, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he looks up. He looks out. He looks into heaven. And he says, I know something. And I want it inscribed in a rock, engraven and filled in with lead. I know that my Redeemer lives and is going to stand as a man upon the earth. And he's going to raise me from the dead. 
and I'm going to behold him with the eyes of this flesh that right now is rotting. First in the history of redemption, glorious confession that God is Redeemer. A confession of the incarnation, a confession of the resurrection of the dead. Now, it was not unknown in uh, patriarchal religion. Uh, We know from Hebrews that Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead. But here it is now, lips of this, this glorious saint. Well, this is really too much for Zophar. In fact, what what Job does at the end of that speech then is, and I think he's quite humble about it, but he again appeals to his friends, stop beating on me. Now, I'm, I'm making this confession. You, look, you know I'm not what you say I am. Look at my face. I'm not lying. But if you keep beating on me, understand the very judgments that you are decrying to be on me can come on you. And he calls them to repentance. Now, that was way too much for Zophar. And so what we have here in Chapter 20 in the first part is Zophar's very angry retort to being called to repentance. And then a further answer to Job's arguments. You see, before this, they've said that absolutely in this life, the wicked are destroyed. And Job has proven that, well, no, sometimes the wicked have great prosperity. So what Zophar has to do now is say, well, yes, they'll have some prosperity, but it's going to be short-lived And there will always be judgment in this life. So that's his thesis here. So we see that the the self-righteous man proudly rejects um, reproof, proudly perverts justice, proudly rejects reproof, proudly perverts justice or God's judgment. Primarily going to look at the second point. We simply begin here by looking at the first three verses of uh, chapter 20. Then so far the name hath I had answered. Do you remember this is merely the string that the Spirit uses to keep the dialogue going? Even when we get to God, we're going to get the same thing. So this is simply teaching us what we have here is um, uh, a dialogue. Plato didn't invent dialogues, you see. The Holy Spirit did. We have a dialogue here. And it's, the string is carried on by this little phrase that begins each new speech. But his, what he says is in verses 2 and 3. Therefore my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listen to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. He's confessing he is quite upset. He is churning within he says that his, his inward parts are all in, in turmoil. He's, he's agitated. He's um, upset. And he's upset because of this reproof. Because he says he's insulted by it. And he ends that sentence by saying, The spirit of my understanding makes man My self-opinion, he's saying. What I know about myself is why I am insulted and why... I refuse to listen. So Job has come reasonably and said, think about this. Think of my confession of something beyond this life for the righteous that far exceeds anything that you have promised me and repent of your beating me up. Zophar is offended because you see he is the righteous one. He and his friends have reasoned because of their wealth and their prestige and their place in the community, that they have God's favor. And who is Job 
who is under God's severe judgment for wickedness to call them to repentance. And so in his self-righteousness, he refuses to humble himself under a very reasonable call to repentance that comes from Job. Sinners will always do that. When you witness and do evangelism, you're going to find it again and again that uh, they will be uh, insulted because, you see, for someone to come to Christ, he has to be brought to a point that he is nothing, morally nothing, spiritually bankrupt, corrupt through and through. And they get angry, just as they got angry with Stephen, angry with our Savior, angry with the Apostle Paul, angry throughout the history of the church. But friends, there's also an important lesson for you and me here as we think about this self-righteous response to uh, a rebuke. How do you respond to a rebuke from someone who you consider to be spiritually inferior to you? Do you respond like David? That's what we're supposed to do when he was cursed by Shemite. He said, let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to say this. Do you recognize that, that regardless of the source, that in God's providence, whatever is being said to you has come to you because it's from the Lord? Now, it might be 100% wrong, but you begin by understanding this comes from the Lord. How are you going to respond? Over 50 years ago, I was youth pastor in church in Meridian, Mississippi, and I was doing some things that I should not have been doing. And there was a, a young man in town who was... A real asset head. I mean, this guy was always tripped out on LSD. I don't think he ever had a sober, rational thought the whole time, but I, he, he was there. And I, I had barely met him. So one day, I, somebody knocks, I, knocks to the door, I open it, and there he stands, completely dazed. And he accused me of being a hypocrite. Now, that's absurd. Who are you to call me? You're not even... I'm a sound mind. But you see, the Lord used that. Enable me to humble myself. Yes, I was being a hypocrite. And even though something probably worse than Balaam's ass at that point accused me of being a hypocrite, he was right. And by God's grace, I humbled myself under that rebuke. Providentially, a few years later, when I was pastoring in Chula, Mississippi, he lived there with family and was much more in a right mind, although he pretty much destroyed a lot of his mind. And I was able to befriend him as well as to share the gospel with him on more than one occasion. And so that's the principle that we as Christians need to get from this, that even if someone who is spiritually inferior to us comes to us with a rebuke, the first thing we do is humble ourselves under it. What is God saying to me here? Do I need to hear something? Second, you'd see no grounds for what they're saying, how do you respond? Well, the wise thing to say is, you know, I don't see that, but I tell you what, I'm going to pray about it, and I'll get back to you. And that's how we can deal then with uh, the rebukes that come to us, even from those that we would recognize not to be on the same page we are even spiritually. So it's in his self-righteousness, his self-esteem, his conviction that he and his friends were the blessed and righteous ones. He refuses then because, well, he doesn't want to hear Job and because Job is spiritually inferior to him.
But that's just the foundation then for the majority of this chapter, where now we get uh, Eliphaz saying four things here about God's judgment. He says that God uh, cuts short the prosperous life of the wicked. God perverts the sinful pleasures of the wicked. God destroys the estate of the wicked. And God accomplishes complete judgment in this life. So first, in verses 4 through 11, God cuts short the prosperity of the wicked. He states his thesis in the form of a question in verses 4 and 5. Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary? Now, the second part of the question is his thesis. That um, the wicked might, for a very brief period of time, triumph. He might have some joy in this world, but it's all momentary. Now, the foundation of that thesis is in the beginning of the question in verse 4. Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on the earth? Again, these men, Job and they, keep going back to the beginning. Going back to Father Adam. Going back to the generations that came forth from them. Holding to the faithful tradition that had been passed on from generation to generation and supplemented with accurate visions from God. And so he's saying, don't you realize that this is the, this is the, the revelation of God, that the, the wicked are always cut off in this life? Well, obviously, if you just had thought about it, that's not true at all. Yes, Cain was judged in this life, and others were, but uh, Lamech wasn't, was he? He was a, a proud, arrogant, violent man, and there's no record of his ever suffering in this life. The generation of Noah's day lived 120 years, as well as much time up to that, in prosperity and even great intellectual pursuits and everything else. So, of course, we know that God, at times, will cut short the progress of the wicked. But it's not an invariable rule, uh, as uh, Zophar claims. But he he enforces that now. He illustrates it in verses uh, 6 through Uh, 11, though his loftiness reaches the heavens, his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like his refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream and they cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no longer and his place no longer beholds him. So in the first place here, he's simply saying that though he may be reached great heights of prosperity... He could have been, he was, he was a proud and an arrogant man. His loftiness was to the heavens. His, his head touches the clouds, yet he perishes like his own dung. Like a, a, the dung of an ash heap, the, of the garbage dump. And he's out of sight, out of mind. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away, that wonderful phrase that Moses picks up in Psalm 90 to describe death. He flies away like a dream. They cannot find him. Like a vision of the night is chased away. How often have you awakened in the morning and, and you knew you had a dream? But for the life of you, you cannot remember that dream. That's the, the idea that's here. That uh, he's it's just like a dream that you cannot even remember in the morning. The eye that saw him sees him no longer and his place no longer beholds him. He's cut off in all of his 
prosperity and all of his pleasure. Uh, God has cut him off. And he cuts off his wealth as well then in verses 10 and 11. His sons favor the poor. His hands give back his wealth. His bones are full of youthful vigor, but it lies down with him in the dust. There's two ways to understand the first part of, uh, of verse 10. His sons favor the poor and return his wealth. So that which was taken um, by oppression and extortion, now his, even his wealth is going to be cut off. He's going to be cut off in midlife, as it says in verse 11. He's full of youthful vigor, but he, he goes to the grave. But he'll have nothing left because his sons will be forced to make restitution to others. Or the other way to translate these words is have to beg for their bread. And one way or other, not only is he cut off, but his posterity loses their wealth. And again, you can see the innuendos with respect to Job at this point. They're going to quit being innuendos in Eliphaz's next speech. But right now, it's simply the the innuendos that God is going to, in this life, invariably cut the wicked short, make him forgettable, and he'll lose his wealth, his family will have nothing. Because either they made restitution or they, in fact, have to beg from others for their bread. So God cuts off the prosperous early. Second, in verses 12 to 19, God perverts the pleasures of his sin. This is a powerful section. And you're going to be able to relate to it. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, he hides it under his tongue. Though he desires it, and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth. Now here we have the wicked man savoring his conquest. Verse 19, he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He sees the house which he's not built. Now, in Eliphaz's next speech, he's actually going to accuse Job of doing these things. So this is simply laying the foundation for that which is going to be said. But, you know, you can see him. He's just sucking on all of his vain glory and all of his vile, tyrannical accomplishments. They are, they are sweet in his mouth, and he's relishing all that he has accomplished in his wickedness. But you know, we don't have to be really wicked to suck on sin like a piece of hard candy, do we? That's the image, isn't it? Can't, can't you picture that? You've got, a, uh, you've got a church mitt in your mouth right now, and um, the evil is sweet, uh, hidden under the tongue, He won't let go of it. You suck on that piece of candy, uh, and you suck on sin, don't you? Little favorite sins. You're anticipating some minor sinful pleasure, or you're entertaining some secret lust or fantasy, and roll that around on your tongue. You probably maybe never do it, but it's sweet to the taste right now. And, and, and we do that, you see. We, we cherish our secret sins. And that's the figure that's here. But in this case, these weren't even secret sins that were being cherished. These were gross sins of oppression. But what happens to the sucked-on pleasures? Beginning in verse 14, Yet his food is in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. He swallows riches but will vomit them up. God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue slays him. That which was sweet in the bud is bitter in the taste, you see. What happens is when you cherish sin, 
is that uh, in God's providence, it turns to poison. And again, how many, well, I hope it hadn't happened too often, but you've had a really great meal and you savored it and there was something either in your body or in the food that undid you and you were deathly ill. Our boys and girls, now I trust that none of you covenant children have ever done this, but there's a candy jar out in the house, maybe it's at a visitor's house, I mean at a friend's house or grandma's house or whatever, and you go, nobody's looking, you grab a handful of that candy or a handful of, of fudge or something like that and you gobble it all down and it really tasted good for about 30 minutes. And you say, Mama, I'm sick. My, my stomach hurts. Well, what's wrong, sweetie? Well, I don't know. You see, you gobbled it down with great pleasure and it turns to poison inside your body. And here the poison is not simply even food poisoning or simply a, a virus. This is deadly poison. This is what sin is. It's deadly poison. The venom of cobras. That's what you swallowed. That you, you swallow riches, but you're going to vomit them up. That God, God's going to expel them from uh, your, your belly. One commentator wrote, Hell is the place where all evil enjoyment is turned to endless nausea. <laughs> Hell is a place where all evil enjoyment is turned to endless nausea. The viper's tongue slays him. And so... God perverts the sinful pleasures, that in which the wicked take delight, and it makes it destructive in them and makes them unable to then enjoy it. So in verse 17, he does not look at the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curds. He returns to what he has attained. He cannot swallow it. He can't keep it down. Even the riches of his trading, he cannot enjoy them, for he has... He has oppressed and forsaken the poor, and he sees the house which he has not built. So the figure of, of looking on streams flowing with river and honey obviously is a biblical theme. Uh, uh, Moses' uh, song in Deuteronomy 32, he made him ride on the high places of the earth. He ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock, oil from flinty rock, curds of cows, milk of the flock. Signs in the old covenant of great pleasure. Now, he had found pleasure in his sinful exploits, but suddenly it says that um, he can no longer look on those things with pleasure. They've been turned to poison. Uh, they now are, give him no satisfaction. He, he cannot swallow it. Even that he, what he got, honestly, even the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy that because of his oppression. Now, in this section, this is probably the, the most accurate thing. Everything Eliphaz, uh, Zophar says has much truth to it. But this is the most accurate thing you understand. This is God's principle. And I want you to think about this because this is Satan's activity. Satan is a master fly fisherman. He floats that little fly right on the surface of your life. And it looks so sweet and wonderful. All he ever punish, promises you in sin is what? Pleasure and happiness. Now, do you think the devil wants your pleasure and happiness? No. He wants your misery. He wants your death. His bait is like the white witch's candy, boys and girls. It, it enslaves Edmund. It brings him into bondage. And listen, Satan's going to come at you, my friends, with all these promises that if you'll just do this or, or you'll do that, 
you're going to find real happiness. Some of you tried that, haven't you? You found out you're looking for, for pleasure, joy, happiness in all the wrong places. Because he'll always coat his bait with sweet delight. But it's all going to turn to the poison of cobras and snakes. And it's going to destroy you if God does not bring you to repentance. So beware of the tempter. Beware of his slyness. He's not only a great fisherman, he's a master psychologist. He knows each of us better than you know yourself. And he's going to come at you according to who you are. And God then will pervert your sinful pleasures. Well, third, we see that God destroys the estate. So he cuts short the prosperous in his prosperity. He perverts uh, sinful pleasures. And now he destroys the estate. Um, He says, actually, in verse uh, uh, 20 and 21, the man cannot really enjoy what he has. He, he knew no quiet within him. He does not retain anything he desires. It's, he's all, always afraid that it will be taken from him in exactly the same way he took it from someone else. Sometimes you, when we watch some of the old mystery movies and stuff like that, there'll be a, one gangster on the way out, and there's another youngster in the neighborhood, and, and all he's trying to do is take what the other one had taken in the wrong way, and the old man is looking back over his shoulder, And he has no contentment and no peace and no satisfaction. That's the picture here. They they take these estates. They're surrounded with all this uh, glamour and prosperity. And they cannot even keep their desires. In fact, nothing's going to remain for him. God's going to wipe him out. He won't even have a bite to eat. Verse 21. His prosperity will not endure. It's going to be cut off. In the fullness of his plenty, he would be cramped. you think he lives in a broad place? No. He's in a cramped and narrow place. God's not going to allow him to come into a broad place. And why is that? Well, in the first place, those who he oppressed will come after him. The hand of everyone who suffers will come against him when he fills his belly. And then we see that God comes after him. But in the first place, the very people that he oppressed... um, Zophar says, will come and oppress him. They'll, they'll destroy him. But more seriously, that even as he's filling his belly, God, verse 23, will send his fierce anger on him. It will rain on him while he's eating. He may flee from the iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. It's drawn forth and comes out his back, the glittering point from his gall. Terrors come upon him. Complete darkness is held in reserve for his treasures. An unfanned fire will devour him. It will consume the survivor in his tent. He gets beyond now the people who are going to come back to this man. He talks now about the direct attack of a holy God on a man who has taken things by oppression, robbery, extortion, and whatever. Even as he's trying to fill his belly, God suddenly will come on him. With fierce anger. Rain on him while he's eating. That anticipates the quail in Numbers 11. Uh, that while the meat was still in their mouth, God's wrath came down upon them. As he's trying to enjoy this. Now we get a very strong metaphor. It's not that God does this physically, but he can flee from the iron weapon, the sword, 
boys, think about the iron weapons, the sword, and the bronze bow um, will pierce him, a bow that really only God could draw the string. And the arrow goes into his body, into his gallbladder, and all the gall spills out on the ground. All of his life juices. In other words, God is going to destroy him. God's going to bring terror upon him. That is what is, is behind this metaphor, is the awful anger of God coming forth to strike him and kill him. He'll have no enjoyment. His treasures are all locked up in darkness. Uh, there's no pleasure in, or joy in them. And then the unfanned fire, which is a divine fire. In fact, the uh, Greek translation of this translates this as unquenchable fire. The figure our Savior picks up for the fires of hell. Unfanned fire. Uh, slowly devouring, like a cancer. So even his survivors will be consumed by this wrath of God. The estate that he's built by extortion is going to also going to be destroyed by God. And then the fourth thing he says that uh, God's judgment, God will complete his judgment in this age. In this age. Last three verses. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. Here's the wicked man, God. This is just a double testimony to say this is the accurate testimony of God of what's going to happen. And what is that? The increase of his house will depart. His possessions will flow away in the day of anger. Nothing left. And then this exclamation. This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. So far, I said, this is it. This is the God-decreed word. This is the God-decreed punishment in this man's life. This is the wicked man's portion. This is the heritage decreed to him by God. So as we worked our way through this, you can see there's a lot of truth here. But I trust underlying that, you can see that the, uh, the self-righteous man proudly uh, rejects re- Proof, but more seriously, proudly perverts the truths of God's justice. So, yes, God judges, and God often judges in this life. But God does not always judge in this life. As has been said, if God only judged in this life, there'd be no place for eternal judgment. And if God never judged in this life, then God's people would lose heart. And so there's these patterns of temporal judgment. Their own individuals and, and their own nations. And it's true, but we may not reason backwards from that as these guys do. That then if you're under the temporal judgment, then you must be suffering for sin. See, that's his problem. And because of that, he has a superficial view of judgment. An imperfect view for things. An imperfect view of the standard. An imperfect view of the... Uh, uh, application, a perfect view of the extent and perfect view of the duration. So first, Zophar has an imperfect view of the standard. Let's go back to Luke 18. What's the standard there? It's all externalism, isn't it? My works, my righteousness, the things that I've done. What was uh, Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad's standard? Well, it was, it was very circular, but they're, they're righteous. Because they were wise and prosperous and well-respected. And their standard then of righteousness was what they had. 
the esteem, the reputation. And uh, they reasoned then that obviously uh, they were very blessed of God. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Um, how often have you talked to someone about the gospel and, well, you know, I know that everything's okay because I am so blessed. I mean, if God were not pleased with me, I just wouldn't have the life that I have. Well, that's pure folly. As we sang in Psalm 92, no, it's fodder for the fires of hell. Yeah, God will bless you now, but don't trust your external blessings for the standard of righteousness. There's but one standard of righteousness, and that's God's holy law. And this morning, do not measure yourself by anything else, not by your reputation, not by your blessings and prosperity. You let your God judge your life by his law. And the law will always drive you out of yourself into the arms of Christ. It's the only safe place, you see. So he perverts justice because he begins with the wrong standard. He's like the Pharisee who prays to himself or the rich young ruler who had kept all of God's law from his youth. And that leads to the, the wrong uh, application. Imperfect because of application. So, and I just anticipated this. This is the circularity of it. Job sinned, therefore Job, uh, Job is suffering, therefore Job sinned, and therefore Job must repent or he'll remain under God's judgment. He's already had all these things in his life. And as I've said, that is wrong. Judgment begins in the household of God. God's triple judgments are not to allow us to make ourselves feel good and look down on others. God's triple judgments are for us to search our own hearts. And that's what God's Christ says in Luke chapter 13 when the Pilate mingled the blood of the worshipers with their sacrifices. He said, do you think they were worse sinners than you folks? Now, when we see God on a micro scale bringing affliction or on a major scale, the first thing we should do is search our own hearts and thank God that he has delivered us from his wrath and condemnation. And not self-righteously look down on others. Well, they got what they deserved. No, he made wrong application. But more seriously, wrong extent. You see, these guys were crass materialists. They didn't understand God's blessing. They, they, for them, God's blessing stopped at health, wealth, and prosperity. And you don't want to stop there. God's great blessing is himself. This is why Job was so broken up. God had removed himself from Job. The joy of his salvation was gone right now. God was hidden behind a cloud. But the, the great blessing of God uh, for you and me is not our bank account and our house and our clothing and our friends, our yards. It's the blessing of God, which we considered this week at the, at the conference and the, the Joyful self-blessedness of God pouring over into our lives. That's the extent of blessing. You see how these men, they stopped short. They, they knew nothing of, of communion with God. Now, I think they were converted. We'll see that then. But in their theology, they recognized no place for communion uh, with God. And then, most tragically, um, it was imperfect in its uh, duration. That's why I emphasize those last three verses. According to Zophar, it all takes place in this life. 
And yet, any temporal judgment happens in this life is but a slight foreshadowing of the pangs of eternal punishment in hell. These things come to quicken consciences. God brings terror to cause people to look out of themselves and to look unto him. He brings his dread on them. Uh, Because the worst you can imagine happening in this life is but a slight little stomach virus in hell. Hell is where all of these things multiplied to an infinite degree, an eternal degree, will happen day after day after day. And so although he says some good and important things and we should surely examine our lives by these things, uh, understand that there's only one escape. It's not your righteousness. It is not your blessings in the community. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He went through suffering far beyond what Joe would ever suffer. Many of the things were mentioned here. He was cut off in the fullness of life. He had the unquenchable fires of hell burning him as he hanged on the cross. But he did that so that you and I can be delivered. We must look beyond now and recognize that that Christ suffered and died that we might be delivered from hell and live with him in eternal glory. And so every one of you here today, young and old, boys and girls, I hope every one of you here this morning is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for your acceptance with God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for um, these insights you've in your wisdom given to us, Lord, in a, a kind of peculiar way, your way, but... Uh, we want to distill the, the gold that's in the rock and, and learn the truth that you have here, Lord, for us in wisdom literature and uh, thrive on that truth. And we ask that you'll enable us to do so. Uh, that these important lessons, Lord, about rebukes and cherishing sin and the consequences of sin would stick hard with us, with our children, Lord. And that you cause us to revel in the reality that our salvation is in Christ alone. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.